Well, what is it that tempts you? What's your great temptation in life? Well, if you ask my family, they'll tell you my biggest temptation is cheese platters. Uh, I might be on the most disciplined health kick in the universe, counting every single kilojoule and working out for hours all day. But you place a platter of soft cheeses and crackers in front of me and I will consume kilojoules faster than a dog in roadkill. Um, (laughs) I don't know why. Cheese seems to get me in a way that street, that's sort of sweets and chocolates don't. But whatever it is, it's my soft spot. Soft cheese, my soft spot. Um, so, you know, if you have me around for a meal or something like that, yes, I do like soft cheeses. It may not be good for me, although I am on cholesterol medication, so I can just eat merrily away, and what's the worst thing that could happen? But on a more serious note, there are more important and significant temptations. There are worse temptations that I face and worse temptations that you face. And the temptations are temptations that are far more subtle, And they are far more serious. They're the temptations that have the potential to lead us away from Jesus. There's a temptation to worship your work. Or worship your leisure. Or worship your money. Or worship your health. Or worship your appearance. Or worship worship your abilities. Or worship your position. Or worship your family. Or worship yourself. It's good to work hard. It's good to save money. It's good to be healthy. It's good to be studying. It's good to care for your family. It's good to take initiative in leadership. It's good to be independent. All those things are good. Except when we worship them instead of Jesus. Because if we're not careful... Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Something has happened to lead Jesus to be sent off to be tempted. And that's what we saw last week in the final two verses of chapter 3. We read that after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. 
And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. You see, Jesus was baptized because he chose to submit And after he was baptized, loved son. So at the end of last chapter, we see two things. We see that Jesus was shown to be the servant and that he was shown to be the son of God. Those two things came out of his baptism. Jesus shown to be the servant and Jesus shown to be the son of God. He's the servant who will suffer and the son of God who will lead as Messiah. The son of God connects him with the whole of the nation of Israel. We've seen this already in chapter 2, where Jesus' journey into and out of Egypt was compared to Israel's journey into and out of Egypt. Because as son of God, Jesus represents Israel. And so right from the moment when he's baptised, we find out that he's God's servant and God's son. And from then... Verse 1, then Jesus was led into the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. By God, by his Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus was in the wilderness. Now we don't even know exactly how the Spirit led Jesus. But given that we do know that the Spirit works through the Word of God, it might be that Jesus knew what the Son of God was supposed to do and, and he obeyed the Spirit by obeying the Scriptures. And by the way, that is how we follow the leading of the Spirit today. God in the Bible and we follow what God says. It's pretty simple. In a sense, it's unspectacular. But when it happens, it is miraculous. But anyway, back to the story, and Jesus follows God's command by heading off to the desert for temptation. But for how long? Well, we read verse 2. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. 40 days in the wilderness. It's kind of like 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is now following in the footsteps of Israel. Can you see that? Jesus for 40 days, Israel for 40 years. What's the link? Well, when Israel was miraculously led out of Egypt by God, they wouldn't trust in God and they grumbled. They were given bread. They were given bread, the manna from heaven, but they weren't happy and they wouldn't trust in God. They failed the test. And now Jesus comes in and does the test for them. And unlike Israel, Jesus didn't have any bread, no manna from heaven. Now, 40 days without food is a really long time, let alone when you're in the wilderness of Judea. And so the question is, will Jesus, the new Israel, the son of God, will he make or break? Well, right as he is at his weakest point, the devil comes in with the ultimate temptation. Verse 3. He says, during that time, during that time, the devil came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Uh, the devil tells Jesus to do what he's within his power to do. Jesus, who created the universe with a word, 
is able to turn the hot stones around him into hot bread just by speaking. But the heart of the devil's temptation was the challenge for Jesus to use his Messiah. How did he stand before? Jesus told the devil, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What did he do? Jesus quoted the Bible at him. He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus says, no, the scriptures say. See, there in his temptation so far, he did basically nothing but quote the Bible at the devil. He knew, Jesus knew that there was something more important than satisfying his physical hunger. It was far more important to obey God's word. And by saying no, Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. By saying no, Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. He showed he was able to obey God's word even when the temptation nearly broke him. But there was another temptation to come. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus is taken to the highest place in Jerusalem, in the most important building of all. And the devil says, jump off. Why? Some people think it's so that he could prove himself to the people. I don't think so. More likely, it was... A temptation for Jesus to prove to himself that he is the son of God. If Jesus happened to have any insecurities within himself, I'm just really not sure if I'm 100% this Messiah or not. I tell you what, I'll test it. I'll jump off and assuming I'm caught, then it proves I am the, the Messiah. Jesus at his weakest would have been tempted to have self doubt. And more than that, to doubt that he really was the son of God. The devil tells him, there's a way to get that proof. Jump off and the angels will protect you. And that, that would have been a temptation that led him to sin. Because if Jesus needed evidence of his role as God's son, and if he was not prepared to submit to God's word as God's servant, then he'd be sinning. Jesus had to fully trust God. And it was even more tempting because Jesus was tempted 
by the devil quoting God's word at him. He used Psalm 91. Remember we looked at Psalm 91 two months ago? He used that and he quoted that promise from verse 11 and 12 that God's king, God's Messiah, would be protected by the angels. But now it was being turned around and distorted by the devil to tempt Jesus to not believe what he's heard from God, but rather to test it by forcing God to do a miracle. Bottom line is this. The devil tempted Jesus to doubt God's word. And so the right response was for him to just believe God's word and not to try and prove it by testing it. That's what he did. Verse 7, Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Right again. Jesus quoted the scriptures back at his satanic temper, quoting Bible saying, the scriptures say. And then he says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. See, Jesus, in the most weakest moment of all, he took hold of the one reliable and powerful weapon in his spiritual warfare, the word of God. Jesus used the ultimate spiritual weapon, God's word. It's the sword of the Spirit, isn't it? Ephesians 6. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is the weapon that defended Jesus against the attacks of the devil. But it's also the weapon Jesus used to attack the devil and to cast him away. See, Jesus knew that he needed to do what Israel didn't do. He needed to worship the Lord his God and serve him only. 
And it worked. Verse 11. Then the devil went away. And angels came and took care of Jesus. Satan was right. The angels did care for Jesus. But it happened because Jesus, the Son of God, worshipped the Lord and obeyed the Lord and trusted the Lord. And that is about this historical account of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. It's all about Jesus doing what Israel couldn't do. Jesus fully obeyed God, even when the temptation was beyond what anyone else could bear. Because he did what Israel couldn't do. And because of that, it showed himself to be the true representative of Israel, as the leader of Israel, the Messiah of God. But even though we're at a situation right here where it's a special temptation at a special time with a special purpose, and we've got to read the Bible that way, of course, we can still learn some things that help us when we attempt it. How did Jesus survive those temptations? He quoted the Bible at the devil. Did you notice that? Now, we're not Jesus. Things are different for us when we're tempted. But the same should apply. And so when we are tempted towards anxiety and self-harm, we should quote the Bible to ourselves. Like Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. When you are in a deep hole, pull out the Bible. Pull it out. Read the Bible. Listen to this word. God is saying it to you. Don't worry about a feeling. Don't worry about anything like that, a miracle of some sort. you just got to open up the book, read Philippians 4, 6, and believe it. What about if you're tempted to sexually sin? Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthy things that are lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust and evil desires. You're tempted? You're tempted towards sexual immorality? You're tempted to lust, impurity, evil desires? What do you got to do? Hear what God is saying to you. Have nothing to do with them. Don't sort of go, oh, just a little bit. No. And as it said before, Set your minds on things above, things of heaven. What about if you're tempted to worship money and material things? How do you deal with that temptation? Do you, do you work really hard and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and grab all of my energy inside to manage? No, don't do that. Open up the Bible. Hebrews 13.5, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. And I love this. Check this promise out. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. You you feel like you're alone. And so you try and love money. You feel down and so you order something online. 
You feel abandoned and so you, you go for retail therapy or a job that gets you more money or you make decisions that will increase your bank account so that you might somehow fill this hole. The Lord says to that temptation, don't love money. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Friends, we don't just learn about, we don't just have the Bible so we know things about God and about ourselves. We definitely have it for that reason. But as we have God's word, we have such a deeply practical book where the spirit of God is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. Here it is. When we are tempted, when we're tempted, when we're tempted, use the Bible. Use the Bible. How good was that memory verse? I've already forgotten it. But the, the Hebrews one with the rap, right? Memorize the Bible so that when you're in that moment, you're not thinking like, oh, where's my Bible app? I mean, do that if you need. But when you're tempted, use the Bible. But you can know as we read the Bible that we're not alone. Hebrews 2 says that since Jesus himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Well, having been tempted for 40 days and nights, but without sinning, Jesus makes a move. Verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. We're not told anything more about John at this stage other than the man um, who prepared Jesus' ministry is now in custody. That's a story that we'll have more details filled in a bit later on. But obviously John's job is done. He's prepared the way for the Lord. And the Lord, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the Son of God, has arrived. And now Jesus heads back to Galilee. Verse 13. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. If you want to know what happened in Nazareth, have a look at Luke chapter 4. They tried to kill him. And so he leaves. He goes to Capernaum, which is on the northern side of Lake Galilee. He moves to Capernaum in Galilee. Uh, who cares? Well, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, like a whole lot of other stuff that he ended up fulfilling, we read in verse 14 and 15, this fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, there they are, Beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live. There's a bit of that. I'm going to get to the next bit in a moment. This is the famous passage from Isaiah 9. The bit that a little bit later on says, For to us the Son is born, to us the Son is given, and so on. That's a little bit later on, a few verses later, but earlier on is this bit right here. Right here is where we see that it tells us that Jesus is going to do his ministry in, in Galilee, of all places, where the Gentiles live. Not in Jerusalem, in Judea, but Capernaum, in Galilee. It's where lots of Gentiles, lots of non-Jews live. See, Jesus was based in the land of the Gentiles. I'm always happy when Gentiles get mentioned in the Bible because, you know, that's me. I'm a Gentile. But the idea that the Jewish Messiah would spend his time hanging out in Gentile territory would have been really odd. But it makes sense because Jesus was following God's word, which foretold where he would be based. And these people up in Gentile, it's not kind of like they just get a bit of a a glimpse at what's happening. 
It's not like they get a teaser. It's not like it's a trailer of the big movie that's coming. Uh-uh. They get the full launch of the ministry. Have a look at verse, the rest of that Isaiah quote, verse 16. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where the death cast its shadow, a light has shined. <laughs> they lived where death cast its shadow. But now they've been blown away by the light of Jesus. <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's, that, it's kind of like when you get up in the morning to see the sunrise. It's pitch dark. And you go there and you, maybe you, you want to see the beach. So you go down to the beach, it's pitch black and freezing cold. But then you just see that the, the light starts to, the sky starts to change just a little bit in colour. And then a bit more, and then a bit more. And before you know it, there is a bright ball of light that is so bright you can't look at it. You've got to put your sunglasses on. And then that great light turns things from night into day. That is the impact of Jesus turning up into Galilee. It's the impact of the Messiah turning up to the world. And here's how he turns darkness into light, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is near. The main thing that Jesus did, what was it? He preached. Do you see that? The main thing Jesus did was preach. It's not the most important thing he did, because that was actually his death on the cross. But in the three years of his ministry before that, preaching was the main game. And what's his message? Well, it turns out to be the same as John the Baptist's. It's repent. That's what we looked at last week. It's what happens when you're driving down the road and you realise you're going the wrong way and so you slow down, pull over and you do a U-turn. You stop going the wrong way and you turn around and come the right way. That is what repentance is. It's saying no to the past and it's saying yes to the future. And what do you need to say no to? Ultimately, you need to say no to self-rule. We need to say no to self-rule. That's the big thing. That's the big problem. Because we all, by nature, are born as enemies of God. We all wear a crown upon our heads trying to be king or queen of our own life. But because God made us and the universe, it's wrong for us to seek independence from him. It's a bit like a nine-year-old telling mum or dad that they're claiming independence. But they're still going to live in the family home. They're still going to eat the food that the parents buy from the shops. They're still going to spend the money that's earned by mum and dad. Do you think it's fair that they ask for independence? Do you think it's right? No way. What a brat. That kid has no right to seek that independence and the parents have every right to discipline them and punish them for treating them so badly. After all, mum and dad bore them and raised them and loved them and now the kid thinks it's fine just to say, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again. That's what we've done to God, all of us, by nature. We've all made our own kingdom apart from God. 
and yet he is the rightful king. He owns everything. He rules everything. And we think we can claim independence and get away with it. Really? No. If God was not loving, then we'd all be wiped out in a flash. Or a flood, to be more precise. But he showed mercy and kindness. He showed us mercy when we least deserved it. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And that light has come to tell them to repent of their sins and turn to God. Have you done that? Many of you who are watching tonight, who are our regular members of church, most of you have done that. You did that when you said, I'm sorry for living the life the way that I am and rejecting you as King Jesus. Please forgive me. There was some time when you did that. And it happened when we then said, Jesus, would you please be my king? And may I be in your kingdom? We said, sorry. Forgive me. Please be my king and in your kingdom. And even though we continue to do things that are wrong, that are sinful, we are still part of that kingdom, safe in the arms of Jesus. Now, if you haven't done that, then you're missing out. You're missing out on the kindness that comes from the love of Jesus. You're missing out on the forgiveness that comes from the mercy of Jesus. And you're missing out on the hope that comes from the salvation of Jesus. Friends, it's time to stop missing out on God's kingdom. Jesus says, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, as Jesus' ministry in Galilee started to kick off, he recruited others to join him. Let me read verses 18 through to 22, a larger chunk now near the end. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water. For they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once, and they followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. These guys recognised that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe they'd been hearing his teaching for quite some time. And maybe this is the point where they had to finally decide if they were going to literally leave their old life behind to follow Jesus. Jesus called them to literally follow him, to uproot their lives, to leave the past behind and be part of his team of travelling evangelists. And what do they do? They immediately followed him. They'd stop fishing for fish and they'd start fishing for people. The fishermen immediately followed Jesus. The fishermen immediately followed Jesus. And they would have joined Jesus in his ministry, which we read about in verse 23. 
Jesus travelled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He gave them the good news about how to follow King Jesus and to join that kingdom. This is at the heart of what he did, and it's related to the most important thing that you could ever do. All of us have a choice. Follow Jesus as king and enjoy his forgiveness and have certainty for eternity as Jesus' follower and friend. Or follow yourself, continuing to reject Jesus and experience his judgment and punishment in hell. All of us have a choice we must make. All of us. And you cannot sit on the fence. You can't say, oh, a bit of this and a bit of that. Up, up, up. Door one or door two. Jesus or yourself. Heaven or hell. It's a simple and compelling choice. It's what Jesus taught. And it's what we all need to hear. And as Jesus went around teaching that, he did some amazing things to show that he was the Messiah. Verse 23, he healed every kind of disease and illness. Spread news about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralysed, he healed them all. He showed that he was truly the Messiah. And he did that by giving some special people a a taste of what the kingdom will be like one day. A time when there will be no more sickness, when there will be no more disease, when there will be no more paralysis, when there will be no more demonic activity. The Messiah proved who he was by what he did. And as he preached, healing along the way, people did as he called them to do, which is really good. And have a look at this final verse, which shows it to us. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, for all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. That's a large area. It's about 100 k's in every direction. They all came in to hear him, to follow him. They knew that he was the new light that dawned and they longed to follow him. Jesus had proven himself as the true Israel by saying no to the temptations in the desert. And now he showed himself to be the true Messiah by proclaiming the kingdom of God as his powerful rule breaks through in so many ways. Right now through this screen, you have heard Jesus preaching right now. He's told you to repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You have no excuse not to join with the fishermen and the crowds and follow Jesus. So don't be tempted to wait any longer. Let me pray.